Good morning, Journey Church. Those of you who are here with us on the roof, those of you who are joining us online, whether uh, here in town or from another city, or even later on the week, we're so glad that you are here with us on this Thanksgiving week. Um, Are you familiar with the psychological malady that is called imposter syndrome? Imposter syndrome, a few hands raised, response, that's always good. Imposter syndrome, it's that, that feeling that that you or I, that we are frauds. Despite the external evidence, despite the achievements, despite the diplomas, despite the accomplishments, I am faking it. I'm a fraud. I feel like a phony. And one day, one day, I'm terrified that you are going to see me the way I see me The cat's going to be out of the bag, and you're going to recognize that I'm an imposter. An imposter. I encountered this on Thursday morning. A man in our congregation that's just been killing it, taking care of odds and ends, doing maintenance, uh, things outside and inside. His name's Tim. And Tim came to ask my help before I took off for a pastor's prayer summit up the hill here. And Tim said, hey, I need help lifting a barrel cactus into the dumpster. I am weak. I am weak. And we had a talk about that on the way over to the dumpster. Uh, Matt Fry, that's here on staff, and I I recruited him because uh, there was this idea like this barrel cactus is impossible. I can't move it. And yet as we got over to the dumpster, here's what I found. I found uh, a barrel cactus at least 100 pounds and just non stop stickers, stickers that had actually gone through the trash can. And somehow, Tim, the weak guy, had managed to get this 100-pound-plus barrel cactus into the trash can and load it upright onto a wagon. Somehow he got it on a wagon and got it all the way over to the dumpster. Well, Tim, I have news for you. You are not weak. And in fact, if you knew Tim more, uh, I believe he's done rim to rim to rim. Uh, A few years back, uh, training, he went up Mount Wrightson, down Mount Wrightson, back up Mount Wrightson, and back down in less than a day to train for rim to rim to rim. So Tim is not weak. But in that moment perhaps a touch of imposter syndrome. And hey, I'm not here to judge or condemn because you know what? I've lived it. Let me just give you one example. There is a part of me, and I don't want to talk about this afterwards. I'm just going to tell you this. I'm not asking for your feedback. I'm not asking for your affirmation. But there's a part of me that is convinced that every time I've showed up at an institution of higher learning, they saw me coming and they lowered their academic standards. Why? Because a guy like me just doesn't pass and graduate. And so there's a part of me that thinks, I got to the master's college when their academic standards were very low. And that is why I got my undergrad in business administration. What happened again? Western Seminary Phoenix. Now Phoenix Seminary, an MDiv program. And I go, it must have been when their academic standards were low because for some reason I was able to do that. And you go, at what point does this stop? And you just go, look, man, you earned the degree. The diploma's on your wall. It just happened again. I'm pretty sure that in three weeks I'm going to actually graduate with a doctorate. And I'm convinced in my mind that Biola lowered their standards. They saw Jim Roden coming. Maybe I picked an easy program. There's something in my mind and imagination stemming back to my childhood that says, dude, you can't learn to read. You're dumb. You're not an academic. You're a fraud. You say, that's impossible. I bet you you've experienced the same thing somewhere along your journey. Something that you've accomplished, that, that by sheer chance or luck or, or some other conglomerations of other 
just, just circumstances. Somehow you got it easy, and that is the source of your success, and you shy away from your success. Yeah, I, it wasn't me. I just, the sneaking suspicion that you, that I, that we are imposters, and you go, um, you know, why are we talking about this? Did you know that, that at least, at least 70% of human beings will struggle with imposter syndrome, feeling like they don't belong, that they're out of their league, that they're a fake and a fraud. Few famous individuals, just to add to the list and the evidence, actor Tom Hanks is convinced that somehow his acting, he just gets lucky. And that's the source. Facebook CEO Sheryl Sandberg thinks that she somehow just got lucky and she's the, the, the CEO. Musician, he's now dead, but David Bowie was convinced that he was a fake and a fraud at certain times. Tennis champion Serena Williams. I mean, come on, how many titles and trophies do you win before you act, at least acknowledge, hey, maybe I'm actually pretty good at tennis? There's more. Uh, CEO of Starbucks, Howard Schultz, actress Tina Fey, U.S. Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor. Plagued by, and at times paralyzed, with this idea that if you saw me for who I know myself to be, the cat would be out of the bag. I am a fake and a fraud. There's a good chance that you've touched this at some point in your life. And the danger is this, that when we show up questioning who we are, everybody loses except for the enemy. Everyone loses. Furthermore, not only do we show up needy and nervous and insecure, feeling the, the painful stares of everyone thinking they see through me right now, but the second thing that that does is it makes us vulnerable. It makes us vulnerable, a, a neediness that makes us want to put other things in the place of who and what God has already told us we are. This is why we tell our little girls, our daughters, as dads, we look into their eyes when they're babies and toddlers and little girls, and we tell them, you are beautiful inside and out. Because little girls that do not have that message, that true message are vulnerable and needy and open to shysters and charlatans and cons and young men that would use them, take advantage of them, and abuse them. Just as Peter anchored his first letter in 63-64 AD in a living hope, Peter, four years later, anchors his second letter, Second Peter, in a legitimate confidence. A legitimate confidence. How to escape a spiritual form of imposter syndrome. And that's what we are looking today in this talk called Legitimate. This is written to the same audience. If you were to go back and read the introduction to 1 Peter, you'd see Asia, Bithynia, Cappadocia, these different places. This is all Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And Peter, we believe him to be in Rome. Paul left in about 63 AD from Rome, went west. Peter shows up on the scene. He's in a hidden bunker, and in 63, 64 AD, he wrote, writes 1 Peter to warn the, the new believers of Asia Minor of a coming fiery trial. And he wants them to know, even though they're going to face persecution, that they have a living hope. Yes, 2 Peter has a different style and flavor. But that is because there are now new circumstances. Things have changed. And if you want to just remember these two letters in this way, what the roaring lion of 1 Peter attempted to do to the church through persecution from the outside, and he failed. The church continued to grow despite official Roman persecution. The Christians taking the fall and the blame for the fires in Rome. 
But now the church is continuing to spread and it is thriving in what the roaring lion could not do. By punishing the church from outside, he would attempt now to do through spiritual heresy. That means doctrines that divide. False teachings. He would attempt to do this now with false teachers and false teachings from the inside of the church. We learn later on in 2 Peter that they are slipping in, they are mimicking and they are masquerading. They are the true imposters. They've got an agenda. The agenda is to make genuine, down-to-earth, everyday believers feel less than. Feel as if they need a spiritual guru. These are called Gnostics. The the Gnostic heresy began early in the 60s uh, of the first century. You see little hints and smatterings in some of the, the early letters, Paul's letters to Colossae and Ephesus and First and Second Timothy, we see it show up in Jude that's very, very similar to Second Peter. We believe it was written first, maybe later. We also see it all the way into the year 90 AD in John's epistles, First John, that the major heresy that is taking place inside of the churches is this Gnostic heresy. Gnosticism, had, it was like a many-headed hydra. All different kinds of branches, very complex systems of hidden knowledge. Some of the world's religions like Manichaeism flowed out of, in the other secret religions of the first, second, and third century, uh, came out of this Christian Gnosticism. And at the heart of it all, the word Gnostic is to know And it wasn't an experiential knowledge. It was an especially initiated knowledge. That you don't know as much as that guy or that gal. That we really need them. They're the anointed ones. They're in the church. They're the powerful, insightful ones. They're the mystical ones. They are the ones that have visions. They are the ones that have special words that you cannot question. They are the one that set them up as spiritual authorities. And we need these gurus in our midst, but it is those same gurus that were the imposters, the same ones that would diminish from the preeminence of Jesus himself. And this is what they're up against. Here in Second Peter, by the way, this ancient Gnosticism never went away. It is alive and well in the American Christian church in many shapes and forms and in many streams of American religion. They know more. You need to listen to their stories. They legitimize themselves. And by the way, um, we're told exactly how to identify them throughout the New Testament and to be anchored not in them and their teaching, but in the teachings of Jesus and the apostles themselves. Peter, in 2 Peter, is nailing their heresy from the word go, from 2 Peter 1.1 onward. This is the context. And even if it's just the lens we put on as we study our way for the next 14 weeks through 2 Peter, it's through this eyes of these insider frauds, these ravenous wolves that would seek to deceive, to gather a following, to make them dependent on them so that they can use and abuse and have their way. Last week we looked at 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1 through 3 with a primary focus on what I believe to be the key verse, verse 3. This week we're going to rewind because it's so rich And we're going to read chapter 1, verse 1 through 4, with a primary focus on verse 4. But understand there's so much here. uh, Don't disregard verse 1 through 3. Okay, so here we go. If you have your Bibles, open them up to 2 Peter chapter 1, reading verses 1 through 4. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith 
of equal standing. Ponder those words, that salutation, through the lens of defeating the Gnostic lie. That you are less than. That you are spiritually uninformed. That you have much to discover before you are truly legitimate. A faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the epinosis. I'm not going to go back into that so much. That was last week's message. Special Special form of gnosis to counteract the Gnostic heresy. It's not just gnosis, it's epinosis. Full knowledge, experiential knowledge. That this grace and peace is multiplied through this full knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the epinosis of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through sinful desire. Now let's stop there, and we got the scriptures, we got the context, but here's the question. What is the first thing that we need to do when we suffer from a kind of spiritual imposter syndrome, an imposter syndrome that makes us feel judged, makes us feel insecure, makes us feel less than, and makes us vulnerable to the guru, whose stories are always better than yours? whose experiences are far more fantastic than you could ever hope to have for yourself. So you will now subjugate yourself to the teacher, follow them. You know, I have no rhodonites, but imagine that. I'm a rhodonite. That guy's powerful. I need him. This is how the Gnostics were doing this. What's the first thing that we need to do in order to escape that kind of deception? I'll submit to you that the first thing that we need to do is get our eyes off our own insecurity and on to the one and only true hero of the faith, Jesus himself, God incarnate. Get your eyes off yourself and on to the one and only true hero. Not the guru, not the mystic, not the powerful one, but Jesus himself. Here's the fill in the blank. There's only one legitimate hero. And notice how I said it. God the Savior. God the Savior. Jesus Christ. Look at the magnificent truths contained in these first four verses. And ask yourself, who is the main character? Who is the actor? Who is the one that is causing all these things to take place? And the answer is not Peter. The answer is not Paul. The answer is not Barnabas. The answer is not Apollos. The answer is not a a guru or a mystic. The answer is Jesus Christ himself. Get your eyes off of your own insecurities. You walk into that room, you feel that sense of shame, that imposter syndrome, I'm not enough, but I'm the only one. I gotta stand in front of them today and I feel like a fraud. Get your eyes off yourself, Jim Roden. Get your eyes on Jesus. It's our agenda to look to him and lift him up. And if you can do that, I'm going to tell you 99% of your problems dissipate. Because you know, I have nothing to prove and nothing to lose. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the hero. I'm just a compassionate spokesperson. I'm I'm a beggar that's trying to help everyone else know where to find the free bread. There's a humility in that. Even if I have the title pastor... The agenda should always be eyes off of me, eyes back on him. Can I point out to you a few things in this text that just just demonstrate that Jesus is the hero. Jesus is, in the the, the, the words of the writer of Hebrews, the author and perfecter of our faith. Everyone else is just a bunch of servants of Christ. 
Here's a few things that, that flow out of the text. First off, number one, he is God incarnate, or God in the flesh. Two times what is called the grand sharp rule. It's the rules of the Greek language. Two times, verse 1 and verse 2, that we see the grand sharp rule by the righteousness of God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The rule says that this cannot be two separate persons or individuals. God and Savior, one man, Jesus Christ. It happens again in verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Not speaking of two individuals, but one. There are no greater statements of the deity of Christ than here. I mean, there's other places all throughout. I mean, John's gospel, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Before Abraham was, I am. The great I am, capital I, capital A, capital M. In Paul's letter to Titus, looking for the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, grand sharp rule. Not two individuals, God and Savior, God and Savior, Jesus Christ, one individual. These are powerful statements of the deity of Christ. He is God himself. It's got to be mind-blowing. Yahweh, the sacred name of the invisible eternal God himself, that Jesus is the incarnation of Yahweh himself. Tell me he's not the hero. Right? Get your eyes on him. Here's number two. He is the source of my adoption into God's family. I didn't do this. I'm not better than the lost people. I didn't figure it out somehow. I'm not more noble. He's the one that did it. It's found in verse one. To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours, the word obtained, lechano, means, according to Strong's Concordance, to receive by divine allotment. It's a picture of rolling the dice. And the lot fell to you and me. It happened from God's own hand in God's own throne room. Jesus himself chose you by divine allotment. He's a hero of my divine allotment. John 15, 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit and that that fruit should remain. You go, whoa, whoa, whoa. Upper room discourse, the 12 disciples before they are officially sent as apostles. Okay, okay, well how about this one? Ephesians 1, 4 through 5, he chose us in him. See, I believe John 15, 16 applies to us, and not just to the 12, which by the way, one was a reprobate named Judas. He didn't quite make it. But listen, Jesus is the one that's saying, even that, even that I'm in control of, I am sovereign over. Ephesians 1, 4 through 5, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption or for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. You didn't save you. You didn't pick you. He chose you. He's the hero of my faith in him. He's God, he's the hero of my faith. Thirdly, he is the complete payment for my eternal deliverance. Look back at verse one, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's his righteousness that earned my forgiveness and my freedom my release from the bondage of sin and its consequences. He did it. I didn't somehow work with him. I, didn't, uh, I was not given the opportunity to, by grace now I get to earn it, prove it, or keep it. It's his righteousness, not mine. Scripture says, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. Number four, he is the powerful one who has given me everything I need to excel. Verse three, his divine power has granted, that word granted, to freely bestow. He's not miserly. He's not close-fisted and like, here's just enough to barely be forgiven or to barely survive in life. It's his divine power has granted 
open and freely. And open-handed generosity is, is the picture, word picture in the, in the Greek. His divine power has granted to us all that pertain, all things that pertain to life and godliness. He is the powerful one that makes all things available to me for life and godliness. Number five, he is the glorious and excellent one. In verse three it says, his divine power has granted us all things pertaining to life and godliness through the epinosis, just keep that word fresh throughout the whole study, through, through the, the epinosis, the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Can we look at those two words really quickly? Glory is the word in the Greek, doxa. It's where we get the word uh, for, for the thing we sing, the doxology. It is the same idea that when, when Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration, late in his earthly ministry, and on the Mount, he has Peter, James, and John. We believe this is Mount Hermon in the northern reaches of, of uh, Israel at the time. It's near a city called Caesarea Philippi. It was uh, in, in ancient Jewish mythology, Mount Hermon was the place where fallen angels came to cohabit with with men and women, or with, with women, actually. And, and uh, Jewish mythology and some of the scripture absolutely teaches that there was this, this wild, crazy, superhuman, demigod offspring called the Nephilim. And according to Jewish mythology, it was Mount Hermon where these fallen angels came. On Mount Hermon, one of the source waters, headwaters of the Jordan River, is a cave where water bubbles up out of the cave, and it was nicknamed the Gates of Hades. It was in that cave that it was, it was rumored that uh, the god Pan, or Banius, was, was born. So whether that's true or not, we're going to actually study that later on in 2 Peter, but whether it's true or not, Jesus was intentionally on Mount Hermon with Peter, James, and John. And on Mount Hermon, Jesus pulled back his veil and revealed his doxa. And his clothing became shimmering white, whiter than any launderer could possibly make them. And by his side, the greatest of all lawgivers, Moses, appeared in spirit form. And on his other side, the greatest prophet that ever existed, Elijah, appears in spirit form. In his glory shines. The disciples don't know what to do. They're blown away by his doxa. In that one moment, he peeled back the veil and let them see, here's who I really am. And to do it on Mount Hermon, like I defy the enemy. And he reveals his glory, not on Mount Zion, Mount Hermon. Tell me he is not glorious, but he also is excellent. The word for excellence, excellence, arete, is any kind of moral or spiritual or physical excellence, perfection. That it is not our glory and our perfection. It is his glory and his perfection that makes all of this possible because he is so good and so glorious. He has granted to us these wonderful promises. That's what it says here. His divine power has granted us all things, praying life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own doxa and arete. Number six, he is the great promise giver. Verse four, verse four says, by which, by what? His power, his, all these other things. No, in the, in the, in the Greek it refers back to doxo and arete his glory and excellence, that by these things, because he is so wonderful, because he is so perfect in everything, because he is so good, he has granted to us a certain kinds of promises. Here's the modifiers. Precious. Timaeus. You recognize the name, Timmy. Timothy. Timaeo that this is precious and honorable, valuable. He has given us precious 
in honorable and valuable promises that are not just for the initiated, but for all believers. There's a second kind of, of modifier. They're not only temios, precious, but they're also megistos, very great. You recognize the, the cognate, mega, megistos. These promises are to me, oh, they're precious, they're valuable, and they're magistas. They're enormous, they're huge, they're exponential. See, he's the one because he's so glorious and so good. He's given us these promises that are ours. And no, you don't need to be initiated in the way that the Gnostics said. This is something beyond their wildest imagination that Peter wants to be sure. Don't let them trick you. Let me tell you a quick story. When I was a, a little kid, there was a guy named uh, Stonewall. Keep his last name out of it because now we're so online, people find their names and go, hey, whoa, wait a second. Um, Stonewall was, uh, he was a hillbilly kid and a liar. And Stonewall would always tell stories. I'm in first, second grade, okay? And, and not only could I not learn how to read, but I was gullible. And Stonewall told me stories all the time. I think at first he told them to everyone, but he got shut down because they were smart and uh, they knew that he was a liar, but I was gullible. His stories were that he had hound dogs that could jump a mile in the sky and that if I ever ran into him and his hound dogs, they would eat me up, and I quote, until there was nothing left of me except a speck of bone. And I'm like, I do not want to, want to meet Stonewall's dogs. And I was so gullible, I, I, I knew where he lived, about a mile toward the west, northwest. And I remember thinking, like, I was so convinced that if I looked over there at the right time, I'd see a hound dog a mile in the air. And so one day, second grade, afternoon recess, there was a stray dog running on the playground, and Stonewall started to yell out, it's my dogs, it's my dogs. And I, in terror, ran into the classroom. And I started to cry. Yeah, second grade, that's me, I did that. Imposter, right? Okay, so Suzanne, I'll keep her last name out of it. Suzanne was taller and more mature than any of the other kids and brilliant. And she said, Jimmy Roden, stop crying. Stonewall's a liar. And I snapped out of it. Oh, that ain't his hound dog? No, he doesn't have hound dogs. Stop listening to that liar. And that's all I needed to be delivered from the nonsense of the Gnostic. The Gnostic liar that told me the lie and I believed the lie and I was needy, I was insecure, I didn't know. I needed a promise, and Suzanne delivered, you're not going to be eaten. This is a picture of, of what we've just outlined here, that, that Jesus is the hero. Get your eyes off yourself, your circumstances, your insecurities, get them onto Jesus. Because of his glory and his goodness, he's given to us precious and very great promises. Will you believe them? Will you receive them? Will you let your heart embrace them? Will you walk in them? Can I just recite a few of them from John's gospel and one from Hebrews? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes on him should not perish but have everlasting life. That is a great and precious promise. Do you believe? Do you believe? You got eternal life. It's a good promise. John 15, 16, I already mentioned it. You didn't choose me, I chose you. I appointed you to go and bear fruit and that that fruit should remain. You believe it? If you don't like that one, choose the Ephesians 1 version of it that you can't get out of. He chose you. He loves you. John 10, 11, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus loved you so much, loved me so much, loved us so much. He died in our place. He is the good shepherd that gave his life for the sheep. John 10, 28, a few verses later, no one shall ever pluck him out of my hand. Good to go? Is that, is that precious? Is that a great promise 
Then let me just grab Hebrews 13, 5. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Is that a great and precious? Is that a timeo and magistos promise? So here's that takeaway. Jesus is the hero. The scripture that we read, that Tyler read, that we looked at as part of our worship time, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Hey, I don't even know what those are. Do you know what thrones and dominions, rulers and authorities even are? Something in the invisible realm that's beyond our imagination that Jesus made those two? All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. We're still trying to figure out how gravity works. We're still trying to figure out how in the world an atom can hold together with electrons, protons, neutrons, things spinning around so fast they should fly apart, and yet they hold together. How is that working? I believe the answer is found in Colossians 1. In him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That means there are going to be more than in everything he might be preeminent. You know what that means? The center point of it all. He's the hero. And when we get our eyes off of self and insecurity and onto Jesus, wonderful things begin to happen. So that's the first part. Jesus is the hero. Now Peter wants us to understand that the rest, rest of us, if Jesus is the only true authority, the only true hero of the story, of our salvation, then everyone that comes to Jesus is on equal footing at the foot of the cross. Okay? He wants to be sure we understand that we are all on equal footing. Why is this so important? Because Gnostics wanted to gain an advantage over you and I. They wanted to be needed so that they could exploit. Okay, Jude, half-brother of Jesus, wrote in his short epistle, he describes these false teachers. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain an advantage. There's an agenda. And there are false teachers in the world today that are the same profile. 22 years later, in 90 AD, John, the longest living apostle, penned these words in 1 John 2, 26-27. And yes, this was in opposition to the Gnostic heresy as well. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, Stonewall, trying to trick you spiritually. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. He doesn't mean that there aren't pastors and teachers and Bible scholars. He's referring to these false teachers that need to be needed, that want to use you and I to make us feel less than. You have no need that, you, that, that anyone should teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about everything is, and, and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, so abide in him. See the picture? The abusers, the ones that would judge you, put you down, say, yeah, you don't really have a powerful faith, do you? You don't hear from the Lord much. Why don't you let me train you in that? And you go, oh no, I missed something. I read the Bible. That must not be enough. And you feel insecure and a spiritual imposter syndrome takes hold. This is why I believe Peter introduces the letter in the way he does. So I, I want to rewind to verse, verse 1 one more time. And it's interesting how he says, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. And before we go on, let me just... Acknowledge, yeah, apostles. There were apostles. 
Okay, we have the, the, the 12 disciples minus Judas. We have 11. In Acts 1, they add Matthias. And the requirement to be one of the apostles is they had to be eyewitnesses of Jesus himself. Okay, later on, the apostle Paul seems to be added to the list. So now we're up to 13. Some believe that uh, Barnabas, maybe Apollos, um, the half-brothers of Jesus, James and Jude, are cited among the apostles. So now we're up to about 15, maybe as many as 20, but they were all eyewitnesses of Jesus himself as apostles. There is such a thing as spiritual leadership in the church. In fact, there's no such thing as a free-range organic Christian in New Testament theology. That is a freak of of spirituality. I don't need the church. I don't do organized religion. I don't need any spiritual leadership or fellowship or community. So this is not what I'm trying to say today, is that we don't need uh, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 through 12. God has actually given these as gifts to the church. Um, Furthermore, Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews 13, 7 says, obey your leaders and submit to them. Why? Because they're keeping watch over your soul. As those who will have to give an account, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So there are spiritual leaders, and there are those who are responsible for the flock and pastoral care and those kinds of things, but never to pull rank in such a way that any believer is less than. Peter is trying to counteract this, and so he uses the title apostle. Hey, I get it. I saw him. I walk with him. I have authority. What I'm writing to you, I saw with my own eyes. I've heard from the Lord himself. But at the same time he's going, there are false versions of this. And I would that you would know all that you are and release you because Jesus is the only hero, not Peter, not Paul, not not Apollos, no one but Jesus. The rest are merely gifts to the church to help direct and oversee and guide it. But understand this, even the apostles before the cross are equal. And that is why he says, doulos. Simon Peter, doulos and apostolos. Doulos. What was doulos? Well, two words for servant or slave. Doulos is the lowest of the low. This is the one that would wash the dirty, stinky, poopy feet of guests when they arrived and do the dirty laundry and scoop out the latrine. And Peter does this on purpose because he's not pulling rank and saying, you need me. I'm better than you. I have hidden insight that you can only get through me. He's trying to level the playing field by taking both titles and saying, yeah, there's spiritual authority. I am an eyewitness. And what I'm writing to you, perhaps he already knows, this is flowing. It is scripture. Listen to me. Listen to God's word through me. But he is also balancing the equation and saying, and I'm also the lowest of the low. Why? Because I don't want you to feel or think that you are less than. Okay, so it's in his title. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. And then he says this in the same verse, and this is so important today, where he says to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing as ours. Ours? He's talking about the apostles that walked with Jesus and did miracles and are, when they're writing letters and some of them are actually scripture. And Peter's going, yeah, and you have the same exact faith as we have available to us. And 2,000 years later, weak and doubting Christian in the pew, feeble, struggling follower of Jesus who is struggling with spiritual imposter syndrome, Peter's going, you have the exact same faith as myself and the other apostles. Level playing field at the foot of the cross. Don't be deceived. Understand and know that he's the hero and you are a child of God and all the promises are yours 
in Jesus Christ. Don't doubt it, receive it. Receive it. I am legitimate. I'm a legitimate child of God. Why? Because he is legitimate and he says so. This brings us to the central promise that I want us to walk away with this morning, and it's found in verse 4. It's a kind of promise, it's a kind of opportunity that mystics and gurus and Gnostics could only dream to participate in. But because they're frauds, they're excluded. In order, it's actually in the sentence structure. I'm going to actually begin in verse 3, but I want you to hear this. What is available to each and every one of us this morning? It says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers. Partakers, the word there in the Greek, Koinonos, you might recognize it, koinonia, fellowship, partnership, participation, that we might become partners of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. Two things there, one has already happened and is settled You and I, those of us who have put our faith in the finished work of Jesus, when he says it is finished, we say amen. My sins are paid for on the cross. Past, present, and future. Paid for. Paid in full. And that gives us escape from the corruption that is in the world through sinful desire. And in the Greek, it's a done deal. But there's this other thing that opens up before us that is both now and not yet. We've only stepped the the slightest step. Those who have have asked God to forgive their sins, they've looked to Jesus for their salvation, for their righteousness, have barely stepped inside this opportunity and hardly even tasted. This is what it's like in, in the Greek language here. Ginnamai. It's in the subjunctive mood, which is the mood of possibility and potentiality. And that's what it it means when it says that you, by them, through them, you may become partakers. In one sense, you are a partaker, but barely. And an open opportunity has now become yours to press into the divine nature to know him, gnosko, or epinosis, a full knowledge to press into God himself and experience communion with him. This was at the heart of the Gnostics, a secret hidden knowledge that would get you closer to the divine. And Peter's going, that's yours right now. Don't waste it. Don't waste it. This is the bottom line of our message today. Because he is legitimate. He's the hero. He is preeminent. And because he says I am, we are legitimate. A legitimacy that opens unimaginable potential to legitimately know, experience, and become like God. Now understand that last phrase, I'm not talking LDS doctrine. We don't become God, but we do grow in godliness, which means to be like God. You follow? Because Jesus is legit. You and I are legit, and this legitimacy opens up untold potential to experience and know and become like God himself. Do you understand how profoundly deep and mysterious and mystical that is that's available to everyone? Not by special hidden knowledge, but by relationship with the Almighty. Do you believe it? Are you ready to pursue it? Would you like to know how it works? Come back next week and I'll tell you how. Because that's exactly what Peter's going to do in the next verses. But you got to come on Thanksgiving weekend. And you'll see, it'll be clear. 
Let me end with this. This morning, do you know that you've escaped, this final, final phrase, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire? Have you escaped both the power and the penalty of sin and temptation and addiction and the shame and the disgrace that comes with it? Or are you still in a downward spiral of corruption going from bad to worse? Would you like to be delivered? Would you like to be set free? Would you like to be free from the penalty and the the judgment and condemnation that comes through sinful desire and temptation? This morning, would you just come as you are before Jesus, the hero of our faith? You see, some 2,000 years ago, he hung on a cross. It was prophesied hundreds of years before that. Nails piercing his hands and feet, Psalm 22. A thousand years before Jesus was put on the cross, long before the Roman method of execution called crucifixion was even invented, it was prophesied that he would actually have his hands and feet pierced. In other places, Isaiah 53, and then Jesus came. He lived a perfect life. He went to the cross. He died in our place. And for all who would look to him and believe and receive that Jesus paid it all, to look to him and have your sins forgiven. And this world of possibility opens up directly from Jesus to you. Today, won't you receive it? Won't you receive him? Won't you turn to him? Won't you call on the name of the Lord right now? Would you bow with me? Father, we want to thank you, Yahweh God, the great three in one. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus, Yahweh incarnate. Thank you for being the hero of salvation, being the hero of our deliverance. Thank you for being the legitimate Messiah, the legitimate savior of of mankind. Thank you for saving us, forgiving us, giving us great and precious promises. Thank you for your divine power. Thank you for giving us everything to, to, to pertaining to life and godliness. Thank you for opening up to us the opportunity to know and walk with and experience and become more like God himself. Right now we want to receive that and we want to walk into it and experience intimacy with the divine, intimacy with God himself. Lord, may this be a great week of gratitude and thanksgiving as we ponder all these beautiful things. We pray it together in Jesus' name. Amen.